0: What stocks have the folks at Berkshire Hathaway been buying and selling? Glad you asked. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me today, it's our man in Canada, Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Jim Gillies. Good to see you, my friend. Good to be seen, Chris. We're gonna start with Home Depot and simply put, first quarter results were not great. Home Depot's revenue was lower than expected their same-store sales were down four and a half percent and the company says it expects sales to fall somewhere between two and five percent for the year and that is lower than previous guidance shares of Home Depot, are only down 1%, which as a shareholder, I have to say that has me both pleasantly surprised and a little bit confused. Why isn't this worse? I'm not complaining,
1: I'm just confused. (laughs) Why isn't my stock down more? Come on. I think because it was largely expected. Uh, I don't think it's news that um, after a year of inflationary pressure, which followed two years of being locked in your home when the only thing you could do is basically buy stuff for your home. I'm not surprised that the number of uh, grills and outdoor furniture sets that they're selling has gone down. Um, I'm not surprised that uh, uh, home improvement projects are perhaps smaller than on average than they were a year or two ago. Um, People are choosing to spend their money to go out after being locked in their homes for almost two years. Uh, or essentially two years. So I, I think it was largely expected, Chris. I also think I, that the headline I saw um, that made me kind of look at it and go, really? I mean, who cares? It's kind of like one of those things where it's a headline that doesn't contextually doesn't make a lot of sense is that the headline was the last miss of this magnitude was in November of 2002. It's it's kind of like if you're when your favorite sports teams, you know, uh, you might see your favorite sports team and says, oh, you know, they against this other team, they've had a record of uh, over the past one hundred years. Well, okay, the guys playing today weren't playing 84 years ago, so it's kind of irrelevant, right? Um, this might be a reference to the fate of the Boston Bruins and the Toronto Maple Leafs in the Stanley Cup playoffs. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we'll leave that one alone. Um, look, the last the last miss of this magnitude was November of 2002. Okay, well, I'm going to invert. I'm going to pull my inner Charlie Munger out. I'm going to invert. What has transpired for Home Depot? Since the last miss of this magnitude, well, for starters, it's been a ten bagger since. Okay, that's about twelve percent annualized returns before dividends. If you like, if you like your uh, returns, uh, dividend adjusted, assuming reinvestment, it's about fourteen and a half percent. Uh, that has crushed the S and P market returns of 7.7% over the same period, or again, if you like dividend readjusted, or reinvestment adjusted, uh, about 9.8% uh, for the S and P. So this has been a market crushing performance, and I will point out Home Depot had to suffer under the CEO ship of Bob Nardelli until he was thankfully ousted in 2007. Uh, so look. This also, what has happened since the last miss of this magnitude has been, Home Depot has converted itself essentially from a growth story to a cash cow story. And brother, they have been milking that cash cow. Okay, so uh, the capex uh, capex peaked for Home Depot in uh, fiscal 2004, but it kind of stayed about the three and a half to four billion level until fiscal 07 Then, concurrent with Nardelli getting ousted and you know going through the global financial crisis, fell to below a billion dollars by fiscal 09 It's only been slowly ramping up. They really st- slowed new store spending. The business was run for cash. And they did the radical strange thing of deciding to return all of that cash to shareholders. Okay, strange. Uh, And so, over the last 15 years, roughly coinciding with uh, the company finding its footing post global financial crisis, we're not completely going back to the largest miss of this magnitude, but 15 years is pretty decent. The dividend has gone from $0.90 a year to $8.36 a year, that's about 16% annualized. Chris, you say you're a shareholder, I hope you're a long-term shareholder. The company has produced about $125 billion in free cash flow cumulatively over the last 15 years. The dividend has taken that dividend, which has gone straight up, taken about $53 billion. Buybacks have taken about 87 billion. This has reduced since the last miss of this magnitude. This has reduced the share count by 57 percent from 2.35 billion shares to just over a billion shares today. Okay, now if you add those two numbers together, it's slightly more. The free cash flow they produced. The rest has come from yeah. You know, they've increased their debt. They've you know stock option exercise. But if you if you are a trader, if you're someone who tries to go quarter to quarter to quarter with Home Depot, I don't know why you would. I was just going to okay. say, why
0: aren't you? Aren't <laughs> why you would you?
1: finding better
0: targets if you're if you're a trader like that?
1: I hope so. This is the epitome of long-term buy and hold, add opportunistically, and forget about it. Stock. This too shall pass. I'm just I before you asked me to be on the show today I was actually thinking of buying some Home Depot this morning so you know I guess you ruined it for me in terms of foolish trading rules but I'm fine to take that hit because I imagine if I much like my shares in Costco which I've owned for years and added to for years I imagine you know buying some Home Depot and leaving it alone I think would do just fine from here so you know Okay, fine, it's the worst miss of this magnitude in 20 years, and to that I say, big deal, don't care.
0: Just a reminder, because we don't talk about this often. But uh, for any new listeners, yes, we actually do have internal trading restrictions here at the Motley Fool, and one of them is if you're going to talk about a stock on a podcast like this, uh, that basically shuts the window on when the next opportunity for you to buy it is. So, sorry to screw that up for you, but a sacrifice I'm willing to make, Chris. I hope you're willing to continue to make it because we're going to talk about a bunch more stocks in the form of one company, which is Berkshire Hathaway because Berkshire Hathaway filed documents with the SEC late on Monday, a 13F revealing a variety of investments. The one that's getting the most attention is Capital One. Berkshire Hathaway has taken a new stake in Capital One, close to a billion dollars in terms of the stake. and. At the start of the trading day, shares of Capital One were up somewhere in the neighborhood of 7%. This was the headline a lot of people, particularly in the wake of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, which I know you attended. Uh, and one of the narratives coming out of that was, boy, Buffett doesn't really seem to like the banks anymore. Uh, so the headline of Capital One had some people saying, well, maybe he likes the banks now. No, I mean, <laughs> you look a little further. Uh, part of this filing, uh, we learned that Berkshire Hathaway has sold. Their remaining shares of US Bancorp, Bank of New York Mellon, as well as Taiwan Semiconductor Restoration Hardware. I'm wondering what stood out to you because I know it's not Capital One.
1: No, I mean, I've gone through, I've got a whole list of the notes of what, what, uh, what's changed this quarter, but we'll start with Capital One and the banks if you want. First off, with Capital One, as you say, they, they've added about a uh, billion dollar position, it's 9.9 million shares. Everyone needs to calm down about this, uh, which I guess is probably why that 7% bump um, didn't last. I think it's only up 1% or 2% as as we speak. This is 0.3% of Berkshire's portfolio. So, Capital One could go bankrupt tomorrow and I'm not sure Berkshire would notice. So, really just, you know, it's okay. And here's the thing, as you said, you know, the banks Completely gassed uh, Bank of New York Mellon, which was previously a 1.1 billion dollar position at the end of 2022. Uh, completely gassed U.S. Bank Corp, which is only about 290 million dollars. Those are those are kind of relevant. They're still they're still into um, Bank of America. In fact, they added a little bit to Bank of America in the quarter. The first thing that stood out to me though is what it, it was conspicuous by what didn't happen in the quarter, because of course this this filing this 13F filing. Is essentially the the portfolio at a specific date, March thirty first, and of course they file these four times a year. So you know the previous one was you know December thirty first, New Year's Eve, and then this is Mar- March March thirty first. So we got the quarter. Something happened in the March quarter of this year about in the banking industry. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank ring any bells? It rings a couple of bells. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and there was a lot of you know, and of course you know, so they went they went belly up, and then there's been this slow moving banking crisis since. But there was a lot of speculation out there that oh, Buffett's going to be he's going to be greedy when others are fearful. If you heard that before, he's going to be buying regional banks. Well, if he was. They they, they neglected to put it in the 13F. Now, I mean, in theory, so he obviously wasn't. In theory, there could be some positions that he's asked for uh, to, to, you know, he's not done building a position. So, in theory, he could ask for uh, a waiver, but they usually disclose that kind of, that there's a waiver. It's not telling you what we're buying. Didn't see that this time. Didn't look too hard, to be perfectly frank. Um, I think that the takeaway is, you know, he's just not buying the regional banks yet, and, you know, or maybe ever. So, that's fine. But things that leapt out to me, if we can move away from uh, from banking, uh, uh, some moves in the oil sector got some attention. He uh, he sold down about just shy of a fifth of the of the Chevron stake he'd accumulated. Uh, probably sold about five five point one billion dollars worth of Chevron, depending on where he sold it in the quarter. And he added again. Uh, to Occidental Petroleum uh, added about 1.25 billion if you use the weighted average price I suspect it was probably lower because uh, well you can go track his prices online with his uh, form 4 filings and um, he's generally not adding over 60 bucks uh, he likes the high 50s right now uh, in fact he's actually been adding uh, this week or last week rather. Uh, he's added 2.2 million shares in 2023, May 2023, average price just over 58 dollars. Uh, don't forget, Berkshire also owns about 9.3 billion of 8% preferred stock from Occidental. Was 10 billion, but Occidental started to redeem those preferreds and why that matters so and they have to redeem at a 10% premium so they're getting rid of the 8% dividend they have to pay Buffett but they have to pay him 10% more to get out they've got till 2029 to get out of those why that matters is as part of that financing deal where he gave them 10 billion dollars for that preferred he also got 84 now it's 84 million warrants for Occidental. 84 million shares he could buy at an average price of $59.62, I think. Those warrants expire a year after the full redemption of his preferred. So Berkshire is hard into Occidental. Uh, so, you know, people might look at the Chevron sale, like, oh, he's selling, he doesn't believe in, you know, Oil or oil pricing is going up net higher over time. I'm like, yeah, he's just changing horses. Something else that uh, I think is probably going to raise a few eyebrows, and I am here for that, is um, he added just over 20 million shares to Berkshire's largest position. That would be Apple. Now, it's about $3 billion he added,
0: ballpark. We chatted about this earlier, and this is another thing I'm sort of scratching my head on. In the same way that you talked about Home Depot earlier and said, you know, this was largely expected. How could anyone be surprised coming out of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting? Mm-hmm. All of the flowers that Warren Buffett threw at Tim Cook <laughs> and Apple. How can yep. anyone be surprised that Berkshire Hathaway is adding to their stake in Apple? That's exactly where I was going to go.
1: I don't know how you could be surprised, but the prevailing wisdom, the market wisdom, and you can't see the air quotes fools, but I hope you heard them, uh, is that Apple is too expensive. It's trading today at about 29 times trailing earnings. Uh, growth has stalled, uh, you know, over the last year. Revenue is down 0.2 percent. Earnings per share is down about four percent now. I'm going to point you to the most recent quarter, Chris, where revenue was up 11% and earnings per share, helped by buybacks, were up by 25% versus the same quarter last year. So you might actually the the flat numbers might be hiding maybe a nascent reacceleration of some growth. But look, you know, Apple with the their uh, and Buffett again at the meeting, yeah, he he called Apple a better business than anything Berkshire owns. He flat out said it. Okay, that's kind of. Interesting, you know. He praised, as you say, Tim Cook. He pray he has praised many times the Tim Cook's management style and the buybacks that are ongoing at Apple. And and look, Apple remains the predominant cash generation story of our lifetimes. Okay, uh, their margins and their returns on capital are still fantastic. They're still net cash positive, or they're still net cash position on the balance sheet. They, of course, are free cash flow positive. Maybe a little respect for the long term record is warranted rather than just, you know, talking about how, oh no, Apple's too expensive now. And I mean, I've seen people, you know, on Twitter, which so who knows about how accurate that is, talking about shorting Apple here. I'm like, hey, good luck with that. That's a bold strategy. You have fun. So, yeah, so that's the Apple. But again, that's probably going to get a few people. Um, you know, oh, what's going on? Eliminated a couple of small positions. Uh, restoration hardware, uh, which is about $630 million at the end of 2022. That's completely gassed. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be people saying, you know, uh, is that re- recession or inflation concerns? Yeah, probably warranted. Eliminated completely their position in Taiwan. Semiconductor, uh, another about $650 million at the end of 2022. Uh, this was completely not a surprise. Uh, Buffett flat out, said that they eliminated it at the meeting. and The reason why would seem to be geogra- geographical risk, um, which you can probably read as he's un- unhappy with the relationship of China-Taiwan and what it might mean for the future of Taiwan Semiconductor.
0: Yeah. It, this is another uh, move that if you were paying attention to the Q&A during the meeting, you you really shouldn't be surprised by the sale of Taiwan Semiconductor.
1: No, no, it was reported everywhere. Uh, I got, I got three more for you. Uh, they added, uh, they added um, about sixteen percent more to their uh, HP Hewlett Packard, the old HP position, just shy of half a billion dollars. It's about uh, three hundred and sixty billion. I think that's just a growth at a reasonable price investment. Uh, certainly, there's uh, a few folks out there in the in the financial media and world and Twitter sphere and whatever we call these things who really like uh, that position. Oh, that's okay. I'm going to point out it's still barely a one percent position in the overall portfolio. They did reduce their stake in Activision Blizzard by uh, about six seven percent. And and why I'm hitting this one is because first off, a year ago they they, they flat out said this was a merger arb play. Uh, They expect the deal to go through with uh, Microsoft acquiring Activision, and I believe it's in the mid-90s where the deal price is. The stock price is currently in the mid-70s. So, they were looking for you know, to, for that deal to go through and for them to get a higher price. There, of course, that deal has run into some problems over in Europe, um, and uh, so there was speculation beforehand that, well, you know Buffett may have gassed this position entirely, uh, but we'll find out in the 13F. And I'm like, well, since the, the restrictions or the blocking of the deal happened after March 31st, no, you won't find out in the 13F, because that's a position ending March 31st, and Buffett famously won't tell you any more than he has to. So, maybe we'll see in the next one he's continued to sell down the stock. He certainly sounded like he he thought the deal should go through, but that, you know, sometimes what should happen and what do happen are different things. And Then the last thing that I love from the Buffett 13F, or the Berkshire 13F, uh, because this is a company, as, as the uh, one of the resident small cap guys at The Motley Fool, uh, this one's right in my wheelhouse, and I was actually looking at this stock about two weeks ago, and I'm, I'm still looking at it, I'm still wondering about it. But um, it came out in the 13F that Berkshire Hathaway has initiated a position in Vitesse Industries. Or sorry, Vitess Energy, fifty-one thousand shares at the present price. This is worth roughly a million dollars. Now, this is kind of weird because it's a five hundred and fifty-five, five hundred and sixty million dollar company. Even if Berkshire bought the whole thing here, it's irrelevant in the context of a three hundred and twenty-eight billion dollar equity portfolio. If they bought the whole thing, it's 017 percent of the portfolio. But they didn't buy the whole thing. They paid a. They bought a million dollars worth. Which is what 00003 percent? Like, why even bother? Are we sure that this wasn't, you know, Warren bought a billion dollars or a million dollars of this thing because he thought it looks cool and they have a ten percent dividend yield at this point? But I, I, it's just weird to me to see that. But I'm wondering how many people are going to try to coattail Berkshire Hathaway and go running in the direction of the Test Energy. So, anyway, that was the last thing I thought was fun. We're going to find out. Jim Gillies, always
0: great talking to you. Thanks for being here.
1: Honour and a pleasure, Chris. You've got
0: questions, they've got answers. Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp dip into the mailbag to answer your questions about investing, retirement, and dealing with stock from an employer.
2: question comes from Jarrett. My wife and I took a modest chunk of money and set it aside for individual stocks. She and I are taking it as an educational exercise in researching companies, looking at balance sheets, reading the news, and keeping track of progress. So far, I have bought a few shares each of AMD, Berkshire Hathaway, and Dick's Sporting Goods, and I mean literally a few shares. So My two questions are, one, Do you think that there is a minimum share number to reach to really make investments worthwhile? And two, I've heard the quote attributed to Peter Lynch that goes, the best time to buy a stock is now and the best time to sell is never. But when you talk about watering the flowers and pulling the weeds, does that mean selling stocks or does that mean rather just to stop purchasing a certain stock while continuing to purchase shares of flourishing stocks?
3: Well, Jared, I think buying a few shares in a few companies is a great way to sort of tip your toes into buying individual stocks. We do generally recommend that an investor owns at least twenty five companies, just so that you're sufficiently diversified. So it might be better to add some more companies to your portfolio rather than add to what you already own. And these days it's pretty easy to do with commission free trading and some brokers offer offering fractional shares. So you can add more companies with relatively small amounts of money. As you get more comfortable investing in companies, you can increase the percentage of your portfolio you devote to individual stocks. And I would say that, roughly speaking, once it reaches about 5% of your portfolio, then it begins to have a material impact on your overall performance. But stick with the percentage that you're comfortable with as you learn and maybe track your skills at picking stocks. I know many people who have 90% or more of their portfolios in mutual funds and index funds, but just pick stocks with a smallish portion of their portfolios. As for watering the flowers and pulling the weeds, it's a general foolish guideline to let your winners run. Though I would think that I would say that every multiful analyst has a somewhat different take on that. Um, I would say that every time you have cash to invest, focus more on the stock's future potential than its past performance. Though that's definitely a signal of what to pay attention to. Um, as for whether you should sell stocks that are significantly underperforming. We had the fool of plenty of stories of stocks that were down 70, 80, 90%, but then turned around and became great investments. Of course, we've owned also many stocks that went down and stayed down. So I would focus on the reason you bought these companies. And you know, if they're still valid and and the stock isn't doing well, or maybe it's down significantly because the the market overreacted, then just keep holding on. Um, Or is it underperforming and maybe gone down significantly because the future potential really has changed. It's not going to be the investment you thought it would be. and I would say, if so, then maybe you should sell the stock and invest the money elsewhere. And I know that can be difficult because it's an acknowledgement that we maybe made a mistake, um, and we're essentially locking in our losses if you're selling it at a loss. There's actually evidence that investors hold on to their losers too long and sell winners too early, what behavioral finance experts call the disposition effect. But sometimes the right move is to lick our wounds, try to learn from the mistake, and move on.
2: Our next question comes from Gary. Allison, that's me. You are wonderful, smart, and funny, but I think this one is for bro. I'm 61, my wife is 50. When deciding about when I should retire, how do I account for the likelihood that she'll continue to work for several more years? I don't think we have enough say for both of us to retire now, but we could probably live on what she makes as a contract employee. I don't plan to retire right now, but I would like to take my foot off the gas pedal at some point in the near future and control my own time a little more. Complicating the matters a bit is that I'm the one who has health insurance benefits. Should I just see a fee only financial advisor to go through the specifics? So it's true, Gary, that Bro really is the scholar here, and I'm just the I don't know, Gracie to his George Burns. (laughs) But I have been doing this show along his side for a very long time. So, let's see if I can guess what Bro's response would be. I think he would say, yes, you should meet with a fee-only certified financial planner if you're approaching retirement. Uh, bro is also going to say that he's glad to say that you're looking to semi-retire and not retire early because the science tells us that that's the healthier and wealthier path. You'll have more money and you'll because you'll still be earning a paycheck um, and you'll probably stay more active and engaged in life. Now here's the thing, I'm not actually sure what he's going to say about the problem with the healthcare. So bro, this is where I need I need you to step in. Was I right?
3: Uh, Yes, I'm going to say Gary is is right about everything he said about you, because you are wonderful, smart, and funny, and you perfectly anticipated what I was going to say. So, yes, I would say anyone, really, every five or so years should see a fee-only financial planner, but particularly as you get closer to retirement. So, how do you find a fee only financial planner? Well, I'm just going to name the networks I always name, and that is the Garrett Planning Network, G A R R E T T, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, that's NAPFA, and the XY Planning Network. Um, I should say it's not going to be cheap. Um, according to Justin Nichols, the Director of Operations for the Garrett Network, the average hourly rate across their network is225 dollars, with most falling in a range of 175 to 350. And to do a thorough analysis of your retirement prospects will require at least a few hours, if not several. Now that may sound like a lot of money, but one thing to understand is actually most financial advisors don't charge by the hour, but they charge by assets under management, the average fee being one percent or so. Um, and so when you Think of paying 1% of your portfolio to have it managed and get the financial planning. It actually could be very expensive, particularly if you actually don't want your assets managed, you just want a one-time analysis of your retirement plan. Now, if you're looking for a tool that can do some of the number crunching for you um, for free, do an online search for um, CalcXML's tool. Uh, called the Comprehensive Retirement Planning Module. and I think it's one of the best free retirement calculators out there. Just make sure that you have the right one, because CalcXMile makes lots of calculators. The one we're looking for here has the number 606 at the end of the website address. It's not necessarily a substitute for a professional planner, but you'll still learn a thing or two. As for the healthcare coverage, that's a tough one. You can visit healthcare.gov to see what might be available to you through the Affordable Care Act. But you might also talk to your employer about how many hours you'd have to work and still be eligible for healthcare coverage. Nowadays, more employers are embracing what's come to be known as a phased retirement, creating programs by which older Employees can work part time for a few years before retiring. It's good for the employer because many are still struggling to find enough qualified workers. And by keeping you around a while longer, it limits, limits sort of the brain drain. And you could even spend time training your replacement. And it allows you to, as you say, take the foot off the gas pedal and have more free time. And as Allison said, the evidence about retiring is actually mixed, and staying somewhat engaged in the workforce for longer might be good for you.
2: Our next question comes from V. A big part of my portfolio used to be the stocks I had received from my company. Recently, I've sold those stocks to invest in index funds recommended by The Motley Fool. My question is, should I make that investment in one transaction, or is there a better strategy such as investing a portion every certain number of days to hedge against fluctuations in the market?
3: There have been several studies that looked at whether it's better to invest a lump sum all at once or dollar cost average into the market over a period of, say, six to 12 months. And the consensus is that investing all at once wins something like 66 to 75% of the time, depending on the study and the period looked at. And this is because historically the US stock market is up approximately three out of every four years. So usually it makes sense to get your money in the market as soon as possible. And I'll just add that I like that V is highlighting that we at the Full recommend index funds as well as individual stocks. If you don't have the time or inclination to follow individual companies, there's nothing wrong with just sticking with index funds or at least use them to complement your stock portfolio, which is what I do.
2: Next question comes from Brian. What interest rate is the tipping point where it makes more sense to pay off a loan versus placing money in a high-interest savings account? Currently, my savings rate is 4.2%. Is it as simple as paying off loans with rates greater than my savings rate and putting money into the savings account if the loan rate is lower?
3: Uh, Well, Brian, you're on the right track. I would just add that you might want to factor in taxes. So, if you're, let's say, the 24% tax bracket and you pay 5% state income taxes, then the 4.2% you're earning on your savings account is really closer to 3% when you factor in the taxes you're going to have to pay on the interest you receive. So, that could possibly make paying off your debt sooner more attractive, depending on the rate on the debt. Um, But that's just comparing the rate. Uh, to what you would earn on cash, if you have a longer time horizon, the calculation may be comparing the rate on your debt to what you could earn in the stock market, which you know could say six to eight percent maybe. And that's how I think of it. I used to send in extra payments to pay off my mortgage early, but then refinanced during the pandemic at a rate below three percent. So now I invest those extra payments because I'm reasonably confident I could beat that rate on an after-tax basis between now and when I retire. But you know, of course, there's no guarantees. Um, and just a couple other benefits about paying off debt. First, if you don't have debt when you retire, you've lowered your annual expenses, which means you've lowered the amount you need to withdraw from your accounts. That in turn could lower your taxable income, which not only lowers your tax bill, but as we discussed earlier, could lower the amount of your Social Security that is taxed and the amount you pay for Medicare. And then finally, there's just a big psychological benefit to being debt free, especially by the time you retire. So if having a mortgage or some other loan sort of weighs on you, then paying it off might be the better choice.
2: Next question comes from Patrick. We have most of our retirement in IRAs, but recently heard something about 401k annuities. Google tells me BlackRock, along with others, might be buying annuities into their target date funds. This seems like a good idea, though I can imagine lots of ways this can go very, very wrong. Is this a good idea for anyone or just the 401k providers?
3: Yeah, some recent laws have made it easier for 401k providers to add annuities to their plans. And it's not just BlackRock. A recent Wall Street Journal article talked about how State Street and Fidelity are looking to do the same thing. And one reason they're getting embedded into target date funds is that's where the money is. The majority of new 401k contributions go into target date funds. And on the one hand, I actually like this idea as long as these are the types of annuities that pay a monthly or annual income for the rest of the retiree's life, um, and especially if it's a better deal than what an individual could get on their own. And that's often the case with investments in 401ks. I like these types of annuities as a replacement for a portion of a retiree's bond portfolio because they mitigate market risk, because the checks keep coming in regardless of what's going on in the stock and bond markets. They mitigate longevity risk because it can't outlive the payments, and they somewhat mitigate the risk of making mistakes later in life due to cognitive decline. Um, and One reason these are being added to these um, 401ks is that there's evidence that the average retiree actually doesn't know how to turn their portfolio into a paycheck, and they often spend too much too soon. But the other reason is that insurance companies have lobbied Congress very aggressively. To get this to happen. And I attended one of these lobbying events on Capitol Hill a few years ago, uh, and you could just tell they were dying to have access to all that money. So I'm cautiously optimistic that this is a positive development, but I'm reserving judgment until I see more of the actual products.
2: Our next question comes from Arian. I'm currently a 21-year-old senior in college, double majoring in environmental studies and legal studies with the intention of attending law school in the future. However, I've also developed a keen interest in investing, personal finance, and keeping up with the market trends. How would you go about finding an entry-level job in investing? Thank you for producing such informative and engaging content. I began listening to your podcast this year, and now I listen to it every day. You guys are great. Oh, I'm not going to take all the credit for that. That's nice. Thanks, Arian.
3: Yes, thank you. and Good for you for learning about investing at such a young age. Um, So I would say, the first thing to do is figure out what you want to focus on. Are you interested exclusively in investing, or are you also interested in personal finance topics like retirement planning, college planning, taxes, insurance, and those types of things? If it's just investing, then the gold standard designation to begin investigating is the Chartered Financial Analyst designation or the CFA. If you're more interested in personal finances, check out the Certified Financial Planner designation, which I have. And you don't need to necessarily begin preparing for these exams. Um, Just look at some of the course materials, watch some videos on YouTube, and just see if you really enjoy the subject matter. Then look for internships with companies that do what you're interested in. And it could be big name firms or local smaller firms. You could contact them directly or check out the local associations. There are almost 70 CFA societies across the U.S. And for CFP practitioners, there's the Financial Planning Association. And they often allow students to attend events or join at a reduced rate. And by doing all that, I think you'll get a sense of what job you're looking for. Perhaps uh, you'll make some contacts, which could then lead to